0: want to welcome all of you guys to our church, to New Valley. If you're new here, we're super, super glad that you've joined us. And please join us for some coffee or donuts uh, after church. And we look forward to greeting you. Uh, We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. And we're on the second half side of it as we enter Easter. It's sort of perfect timing. And so we're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 12. I'm going to read the passage to us. And as I end... I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we'll say loudly, thanks be to God. So let me read it to us. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet of God. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he went out and sent servants to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning, we're talking about authority, and as we begin, I want to talk about how crucial this is, sort of in light of everything that we're going through as a society right now, and not just our culture, but the entire world, really, with the issue of this coronavirus. And as you know, you listen to the news, how many of you are news junkies? Okay, not, not as many as I might th- think. Uh, I, I am a news junkie, and if you're watching the news at all, the, on repeat, this is the main theme, this in the election, this is pretty much all we're talking about. And it is a big deal, and at least we're making it a very big deal. And so if you're listening, and you're also a person who's prone to control like I am, uh, maybe you're getting anxious. And so as we talk about God's authority this morning, I just want to begin by saying, like, we are the people of God called to live not in fear, right, but in faith. And while this is a serious deal, and, and we don't know the full consequences of this, and we don't know if we're over, overplaying this, maybe we're making too much of it, Uh, and maybe others are making too little, but regardless of whether this takes off and becomes a great disaster or whether it's minimized or not, we need to practice our fear right now. It's in moments like these where we need to call upon the resources that we have, that we live under the authority of God. And by authority, I don't just mean like he makes the rules, but he's sovereign, he's powerful, he's with us. Point is, we can trust him. The early church, um, when they were uh, establishing the church, one of the things that happened in Rome and And, of course, around the world, there were great plagues. And the the Christians of that day were known for when the rest of the people were fleeing the city, they were running towards the city to serve. Many of them lost their lives. And whether the impact is going to be the loss of life of 1% or 2 or 3 or 4 or much greater, let's practice faith. Let's live under the authority of God. Let's be wise. Let's wash our hands, you know, more than we might normally. Let's not touch our mouths as much. Let's Do fists and elbow bumps instead of, and be careful. Maybe there are certain uh, countries you shouldn't uh, go to right this minute. International travel, maybe we avoid this. But on the other hand, let's practice our faith right now. Back to our text. Jesus and his disciples have been making a journey now from Capernaum, which is their outpost. And the first half of uh, the Gospel of Mark is very much about the ministry that they're doing in and around Capernaum, this fishing village, which is Jesus' home base. They took time to do missional uh, journeys to various places, but this is kind of where they hung out. But now Jesus has predicted three times that he will be turned over to the chief priest, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and that he will be killed, and that he will raise again from the dead on the third day. He's told us this three times in the Gospel of Mark, and yet he makes this journey towards Jerusalem. And so last week we saw that, uh, two weeks ago, that as he's coming into Jerusalem, there's a king's parade that's thrown for him, a triumph parade. But instead of a a stallion or a a steed, he he comes in on a small colt, something reserved for a child. In humility, he comes in and they cry out, Hosanna in the highest. And they put down palm branches and other things and, and declare him to be the king. Now, We go to the temple last week in our passage and Pastor Caleb preached on this and he went into the temple and found there that in the courts of the Gentiles, they had um, turned it into like a farmer's market where they're making profit and they're selling animals to be slaughtered and so forth. And so the court of the temple was divided in such a way, and you may or may not know this, but part of it was the Holy of Holies, where only the chief priests could go on certain prescribed days or their life would be in jeopardy. It was the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. God's presence is there. Then there are other areas where only the priests may go. Then there's other areas where only uh, Jewish males could go. And then other areas that were reserved for Jewish women. But there was this court for the nations, the place for the Gentiles. And they took that place and they pushed the Gentiles out, the, the nations, and they were turning it into a farmer's market and selling their wares. Jesus is offended by this because the whole reason that God chose a man, Abraham, and called him to be a people unto himself and and to bring Israel, this vineyard, into existence was that they might be a light to the nations and a blessing. And we forget that. When God called Abraham, he said, I will bless you in order that you will be a blessing to the whole world and ultimately that that blessing would come through the, the Christ, the Messiah. So, when Christ, the Messiah, shows up and comes into the temple after receiving a king's welcome, and he comes into the heart of the temple and sees that they are pushing out the nations, he flips tables, literally, turns them over. And now, today, these same scribes, teachers of the law, and the elders and Pharisees are coming up to him and they're saying, By what authority are you doing such things? This is their church. They're literally in charge of the temple. They know about Jesus. They've been investigating Jesus. People have been talking about Jesus. So this is not the first time they've encountered him. But they are asking him, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus does not answer their question. You know this from the story that we just read. Instead, he follows the rabbinic tradition and he does what the rabbis would do. It's like, okay, you ask me a question. I won't answer your question. I'll ask you another question. But Jesus said to them, if you answer my question, I will answer yours. Right? But in he said this, John in his baptism. He's talking about John the Baptist, of course. Was that from God or was that from man? And he caught them. If they said John's baptism was from God, well, then they had to say to themselves, like, well, why on earth were we not supporting John? Why did we have him killed? And if they said, no, it's from man, he knew uh, that he would, they would offend the crowds because they all believed that John the Baptist was a prophet, and he was. And so they won't answer their, uh, his question. And he says, neither will I answer yours. But he tells them two stories. He tells them two stories. The story of the rejected son and the story of the rejected stone. But first, let's talk about the story of the rejected son. A man plants a vineyard and then leases the land to tenants and moved to another town. And so this man, he takes a vineyard and he, he makes a, a wine press and he digs a pit and he does everything he can to turn this vineyard. Think of like Northern California. He's going to produce wine and he sets up this whole business and he hires people and, and gets tenants that come in and lease the land and, and do the farming and, and, and make the wine and so forth. But he expects to come back in season and to receive some of the fruit from the tenants. Right? Right? But when he sends his servants later to get this wine that's been prepared and and it's now time to receive the fruit of their labor in his land, he sends a servant and they send that servant away empty-handed on the one hand, but also a little bit abused on the other. And so he sends more servants. And these servants, when they arrive, they assault them and they beat them and flog them and and do shameful things to them, the, the, the gospel of Mark says. And so he sends more servants and these servants they kill. And he says to them, I have one remaining person to send, my own son, my beloved son. Surely they'll respect my beloved son. Surely they will listen to him. Surely they will make good on giving him the fruit of what I own. I own this property. I I am the owner of this. They're simply tenants. Surely if my own beloved son goes, they'll follow through. But instead They conspire together and they say, if we kill the son, we'll get the inheritance and the vineyard will be ours. And they killed the son and they threw him out of the vineyard. So you kind of get this parable. A lot of the parables, Jesus is sort of hiding the meaning in a bit, but this one is very straightforward. (laughs) God owns the world. God is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is the entire universe, ultimately, but in this instance, the vineyard is Israel. And God's people, Israel, are meant to produce fruit. They are meant to bring about the fruit of righteousness and God's mercy and God's justice. They're to reflect his character, especially the leaders of Israel, right? And they're meant to bear fruit. In the New Testament, we say the fruit of the Holy Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience. In the Old Testament, justice, righteousness, mercy, holiness are to be borne by God's people. And so when they strayed, God sent servants. They're not following through on producing fruit, and so God sends his servants. He sent prophets, and they ignored them. He sent more prophets, and they beat them. He sent some and they were killed like John the Baptist and he was not alone. And so now he's sending his beloved son and these same men are conspiring together to throw him out of the vineyard and to kill him. But surely, the parable asks, they would listen to God's own beloved son, but they don't. And I like to believe that if Jesus were to come to earth and like set up shop in, instead of Capernaum, but in Chandler, Arizona, or Tempe, that if I heard about him and saw him in person and, and, and myself as a religious leader would come up to him and, and greet him and get to know him personally, that I would get, this is God in the flesh, and follow him. But you can see why it might be a little difficult, can't you? I mean, this man all of a sudden comes onto the scene in human history and is saying, "I am the creator of the universe. The entire Old Testament is about me. I am the fulfillment of all of Israel's longing and dreams." On my daily drive to church here, I go down Elliot, and on Elliot, and just a mile or so from here, I forget if it's Alma School or Dobson, on the north west side corner, there is a small, very small house that has a big banner on the side of it with a guy's face and his name, and it's declaring that he's the Messiah, right? I have not yet made a right turn and pulled into the driveway to meet him because I don't believe it. And they're also rejecting Jesus's authority. And again, perhaps it must have been difficult to believe, but why? So Jesus, Jesus is coming along, and he's declaring this authority. They're questioning his authority. He has authority, and and, and we have to ask ourselves, why would we trust him to be the authority of our lives? Because this is exactly what Jesus is declaring. By what authority do you do these things? And by inference, we're now asking the question, by what authority is Jesus' authority? Why would we give him our lives? Why would we organize our entire life around him? Why would we show up on... On, week, uh, on a day of our week to sing songs about him, to uh, pray to him, to read scriptures about him, to sing to him. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, we were told that he has the authority over sickness. People had the coronavirus. He would just come into the room and they would be healed immediately. He would go and when someone was lame, they could walk. If they were blind, they could see. If they were deaf, they could hear. If they were mute, they could speak. The kingdom of God was ushered in by his physical presence. He has authority over wind. He has authority over uh, weather and storms. He has authority over evil. He goes across the Sea of Galilee to find the demoniac, this man filled with demons, and he just declares peace over this man, and the evil has to flee. It casts itself into a herd of swine and jumps over the cliff. He even has authority over life and death when he comes back over the Sea of Galilee and finds the man's uh, daughter dying and then dead. And he goes to her room and says, little girl, get up. And she does. And now we're going to see in just a few weeks in Easter that we see that he has authority and he's so connected to the father that even when he dies, he rises from the dead. Jesus is the authority because he is the author, according to the Bible. If the Christian gospel is true and the Bible is true, then Jesus is not only an authority, he is the authority. He is literally the author of what is. In Paul's writings, Colossians chapter 1, Paul was, by the way, one of those Pharisees that hated Jesus, that rejected Jesus, that was persecuting Christians, even seeking them out unto death. And later... After his conversion, Paul would write this to the Colossians. For by Jesus, all things were created. The entire universe is created by Christ. Everything in heaven, rest of the universe, everything on earth. Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All are created through him and for him. He's before all things. Before anything else was, Jesus Christ was the triune God. And in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. Why does he get to be the authority in your life? He's God. If Christianity is true, the Bible is accurate. Jesus Christ is God. He gets to be the authority because he created you in all things, and he loves you, and he sustains all things. Everything we can see, everything we can't see, every CEO, every king, every president, every prime minister, he's the ruler over all of them. Everything. Not only did he create all things, but he sustains all things. Everything is held together and has integrity because a God of purpose and design and power and authority and sovereignty created them. That's why he gets to be the authority in our lives. And these, these chief priests and rulers are not seeing Jesus as authority, and they won't submit to him, and he catches them in their problem. They won't submit to him because they have placed themselves in a place that no human being should ever be, which is as the ultimate authority. And to the degree that you're given authority in this life, to an even greater degree, do you need to see yourself as under-authority? To the degree that you're given authority in this life. So as your authority in this life grows, followers of Jesus, we need to see that we are called to see that we have an even greater authority over us. And we have an idiom in our, in our language, right? That with great uh, authority comes great responsibility, right? With the more authority, the more power we have, the more greater responsibility we have in this life. And they're failing to see their authority under the Messiah, Several years ago, I was reading an article in Newsweek about um, the filmmaker Woody Allen. And the article was called, Still Working and Still Terrified. And the the article says this, Woody Allen has devoted his career to making films that consistently assert the randomness of life. And at 72, he's much older now, he says he still lies awake at night, terrified of the void. He can't reconcile his strident atheism with his superstition about the banana. But he knows why he makes movies, not because he has any grand statement to offer, but simply to take his mind off the existential horror of being alive. Movies are a great diversion, he says, because it's much more pleasant to be obsessed over how the hero gets out of his predicament than how I can get out of mine. What about the banana? He cuts his banana into seven slices each morning. Six slices or eight, something bad might happen. I know, he says, it would be a total coincidence if I didn't slice it into seven pieces and my family was killed in a fire. I understand that there could be no correlation, but you know the guilt would be due too much for me, and so it's easier for me to cut the stupid banana. I can just hear his voice saying that. On the one hand, Woody Allen is an atheist, consistent atheist. Life is meaningless, random, with absolutely no purpose. There is no God, there is no authority, there is no ultimate truth, there is no ultimate accountability. And yet, every day when he has a banana, he cuts it into seven slices, not six, not eight, because if he fails to do so, something in the universe or in his personal life might completely fall apart. Why? <laughs> because we as human beings whose power and authority and existence are derivative, not in and of itself. We come from a living God, can't help but say to ourselves, there is a power above us. There is an ultimate authority above us. Even our friend Woody Allen, the atheist, behaves as if it's true. A Christian, though, should be on a journey, not an easy one, but a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment journey of increasingly realizing that he or she is not the owner of her life. That you're a tenant. You're renting. And you don't have the option to buy. We all have stuff. I've got a bunch of stuff. We believe in personal property. It's not evil. The material world is not evil. It's what our hearts do with it. I've got stuff. I've got a garage full of stuff. I've got closets full of stuff. I've got 401Ks and 403Bs and college I've got stuff. I've got money. So do you. But I tend to say it like that. This is my house, right? This is my car. It's my wife. These are my sons. This is my house. This is my stuff. This whole closet full of junk is mine. (laughs) Like everything in this account. I've got my passwords for it. That's mine. That's my retirement account. That's mine. And God comes along and says, you're thinking about this a little wrong. Because on the one hand, of course, it's yours to manage. It's yours to steward. You're the tenant of the vineyard that I've given you. But on the other hand, you've got a little bit of a tight grip on this. You know what I mean? Mine. My house. My car. My people. My job. My church. Mine. 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 And Jesus says, wait a minute here. You're renting. And guess what? Guess what's going to happen to you? And you... You, you, you. We just had Ash Wednesday service downtown, and the pastors, we were putting burnt ashes on people's foreheads and saying, you're dust, and you shall return to dust. Remember, you're dust, and you shall return to dust. You're dust, over and over and over. You're dust, you're dust. What a great reminder. Nobody here gets out alive. You're, you're not as sovereign as you think. You're not as in control as you think. A coronavirus comes along and reminds us, man, we're not nearly as powerful as we think. We are the United States of America. And it turns out we may not be as prepared and we're going to torch people over it. I can't believe and these poor people. Can you imagine having the job that no one notices you unless there's a crisis? And the only reason you get noticed is because everything's falling apart. And it's just horrible. Like, who would do that? But a Christian is increasingly learning to say, I am not my own. I belong to another. I am not the owner. I'm a tenant. Amen? I know I'm not there, and you're not either, but we have to keep calling ourselves this. I'm not in authority. I have some authority, but it's a derivative authority. It comes from another. And I am accountable to another. Now, here's an interesting thing why would the one who calls us to humility, Jesus, is constantly calling us to be humble. Say, you need to organize your entire life around me. I have to be the king and lord of your life. There's no other way to the Father except through me. Doesn't that seem backwards. doesn't seem strange that the one who's calling us to be humble, who says, I've come as a servant, is also coming us to say, you should organize your entire life around me. I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. It would be a strange thing except that He is the only one who can handle being at the center of the universe and all that is. Only he can bear that weight. He's so good, so magnificent, so powerful, so sovereign, so authoritative that it would actually be, be wrong for him to say, you should love and serve another. Why? Imagine if you really are and he is the most glorious beautiful thing that exists in the universe. Nothing else would exist if it weren't for him. If he said, "You know what? Go ahead and settle for romance. It's fine." Put romance at the center of your life. You know, a little money. You should just make money. That should be your thing instead of me. You should make your own power, your own glory. That should be your kids should be preeminent, not me. That would be sick and twisted, right? If he actually is that good that beautiful, that powerful, that magnificent. And so God rightfully calls us to make him at the center of our lives. The next thing I want us to see is the story of the rejected stone. First, the the story of the rejected son, now the stone. At the end of the story, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. He says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, back in that day, and I'm sure to some degree today too, it was really important as you created a building to select a cornerstone, right? A literal stone that would be the centerpiece of the foundation of the building. And if that stone was not uh, straight and, and had integrity and had strength as a stone, then the entire uh, building, as you can imagine, would collapse. And so it had to be straight. It had to be true. It had to set the details and and, and make right corners for the entire building. It had to have integrity and strength to hold up the rest of the foundation. If it were crooked, the building would collapse. And Jesus is coming along and saying, I am that cornerstone. And he's standing in the temple. And by reference, he's saying, look, this temple will be destroyed. But I am the temple. I am the cornerstone. I am the centerpiece. I'm the one that's being rejected. You can tear down the temple, but you will not tear down the temple not made with hands. And the leaders get what he's saying. Again, in a lot of the other parables, they're just scratching their heads going, what is he talking about? In this one, they're like, oh, he's talking about us. (laughs) He's saying he's the centerpiece, he's the Messiah, we've got it all wrong, and that we're about to kill him, and that the vine owner, the vineyard owner is coming out for us. The thing I want us to see as we close, looking at this cornerstone piece, is that Jesus really is the true authority in your life. Whether you submit to him or not, the Bible says there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, along with atheists, the entire world will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the authority. Submit to his authority. What does that look like? Well, it's, it begins to organize your life around it, that he gets the last word on, on your heart, on life, on money, on power, on sex, on marriage, on, on, on your raising of children, all that. You go to him and say, be the Lord of my life. I'm tired. I'm tired of doing this on my own. But how often do we build our lives around something that in the end leads to a faulty foundation? Your life is only as solid as your cornerstone. And I love being a pastor, and one of the the most beautiful things about being a pastor is you you get to celebrate with people in their highest of highs. You get to baptize people. What a blessing. One of the great moments of life. You get to be there in that moment as a pastor. But you also get to journey with people when their life is crumbling and, and the brokenness of life is falling hard on them. And that, too, is an honor. But as you walk, uh, not just as pastors, but as people just in the church loving and caring for one another, and you see the brokenness in life, and you see that people bearing up under these great difficulties, you see that oftentimes what's happening is somebody in their life has been building a life on the wrong cornerstone, and life is breaking, and that brokenness is crashing in all around them. What happens when your career is your cornerstone? When you're literally building your life, like this is all that matters to me. This is the most important thing. I'm going to arrange everything. It has to square up around my career, my business that I started, or this job that I have with another another company, and they decide, you know what? Your your skills and assets are no, no longer needed here. But I've made my life this. What about relationships are your cornerstone. I have to find someone that will speak into my life and love me in a way that no one else has ever loved me. I have to have that. But what if they leave me? What if they reject me? What if they die? Where's your cornerstone? Where's your foundation? What if your beauty is your cornerstone? Your looks in the end, friends, gravity always wins. <laughs> you notice these horrible things on the internet. It's like clickbait, right? It's like this picture of like, you know, you'll be astounded. Everything's like grandiose. You'll just be blown away if you click on this and see what she looks like today. And it's usually this horrible picture of like, she was beautiful when she was 20, and now her looks have left her. And it's this horrendous thing that they would do to another human being. Horrible, And yet the point is this. If that's your cornerstone, if that's your foundation, it doesn't matter how good a shape you are. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are. Gravity wins. Your looks leave you. What is your cornerstone? Your beauty, your money, your power, your relationships, your identity. What is it? Is it strong enough to handle the pressures of life And the ultimate future that all of us hold, we will lose this life, this earthly life that we have. Will it hold up under that pressure, your cornerstone? Is your cornerstone strong enough, straight enough to make your life square, healthy, solid? Jesus is saying, I am that cornerstone. I have the authority, I've backed it up, and I'm about to back it up. They're gonna kill me but on the third day I will rise again. Back to our original story. When the son comes to the vineyard, the tenants say, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And then we'll get the inheritance. We'll get the vineyard ourselves. And so they kill him and they threw him out of the vineyard. And in this parable, the way Jesus is telling it, it's as if the son is killed by accident. The owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll listen to my son, right? But when God the Father sends his eternal son to earth, he knows where this is headed. Jesus has told us three times, they will do this. He doesn't leave and go, hey, you know what? I'm going to Syria. (laughs) He goes to Jerusalem. He marches as a king to Jerusalem, knowing that. They will hand me over to men, and I will be tortured. I will be be beaten. I will be mocked. I will be spat upon. I will die. And he goes. And in the garden, when he prays, if there is another cup, if we could figure out a different plan, Father, uh, may that come to pass. And the Father, in his silence, says, No, this cup will not pass. So, in this real life story, that was lived out only days later from this moment in time that Mark is describing. The Son of God, the beloved Son, goes to the cross by the plan of the Father for a reason. And it's to make you and me, people who have never lived under God's authority by choice. We've constantly rebelled against it. I continue to to this day in some ways. We have not lived fully and finally under his authority, and yet the father sends his son willingly in order that you may become a son or daughter, an heir. And Paul writes this in Galatians 4. (coughs) But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, And when he says sons there, he means sons, and he means men and women. He's not excluding women in this text when he says sons. He says that men and women, in essence, have all the rights and all the privileges of a firstborn son in this time, in this day. All of us in Christ will be sons, firstborn sons. And because you're sons, God sent the Spirit to his son into our hearts crying, Daddy, Abba. Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a firstborn son. The Father willingly sent his Son, gladly, joyfully, even, so that you might never be cast out of the vineyard. That even though Jesus was rejected, you would never be rejected. Even though he was cursed, you would never be cursed. This is the gospel, it's that good. And as we begin to reflect on how good the gospel is, that God would not deny us his own son, would gladly send him into this vineyard, that he would be cast out so that we wouldn't be. How can we not joyfully say, oh Lord, you get to be the ruler of my life. I submit to the lordship of your life. I will gladly bow my knee before you because you are the one who has all this power, all this authority, all this sovereignty, and yet you've loved me like this. Who else can love me like this? Nobody. Friends, let us joyfully submit to the one who has all the authority in the universe and yet loves us this way. Let's pray. Oh, Father, each one of us has rebelled against your authority. We don't have to be taught to question authority. We just come by it naturally. And as we question, as we rebel, as we shake our fists, at you, Father, have mercy on us and help us to see your goodness, why you deserve to be in control. You are the Lord. Help us see the foolishness, Lord, in building our lives and all the other things that we're trying to build our lives on. And every one of us is doing it. On pleasure, on power, on money. It just doesn't work. Oh, Lord, save us. Help us to look to your beloved Son in his authority, power, love, and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.